As I look out uh, in this vast room of empty chairs today, I'm grateful to the Lord that you are creatures of habit because I can sit here and kind of visualize where each of you normally sit. So as I look around the room, um, I'm getting pictures of families and people and where you normally are up in the balcony, in the front rows of the balcony and a little bit further back. So I find that very helpful and comforting and I'm going to be thinking about that as we move our way through the service that, that you're here. And in fact, um, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, when he was uh, uh, writing to them with respect to a church discipline matter, he, he wasn't there, but yet he said to them in the text, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And then he says uh, later on, I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. I find that really comforting to know and it's really important that we are together in this stream moment because uh, wherever you are, we are actually together because of the presence of the Spirit of God. Because we are the temple of the Lord, it doesn't matter that our location is scattered. We are actually present together in Christ Jesus. And I'm finding that really helpful this morning. So the combination of knowing that we are together in the Lord and uh, in spirit, because of his spirit, and uh, looking around and seeing your smiling faces, um, even if only in my imagination, is, is very comforting to me today. So we're going to uh, continue on with our series. And uh, this morning, I've been thinking a lot as we move our way to the uh, actual events of the crucifixion. And today we're going to look at the various trials. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot this week about the fact that if humanity would assassinate Jesus, there isn't any wicked thing that is out of bounds. I, I hadn't thought about that that much before, but as I continue to study through the Gospel of Mark and get a a new picture, a, a fresh picture of Jesus and his, how marvelous our Messiah is, how awesome and how gracious and how kind and caring he is, how, how wise his teachings were and how important his teachings were. For me, it's how could, how could humanity crucify this Savior? It seems that there are forces that were simply committed to ridding themselves of Jesus. And, and then, of course, there are those even among us today who are committed to ridding themselves of Jesus uh, through indifference. They, they just don't care. They, they don't care that there's a Jesus. They don't care about him. And certainly not enough to risk serving him, not enough to risk any creature comforts to serve him. What I've learned from the study of this week's sermon, and we'll look in a few moments at it, is that, that when truth is a product or a commodity for, to serve personal ambitions, there's no end of evil. When truth becomes a commodity or a product to serve personal ambitions, there's no amount of evil that's out of bounds. In uh, your text today, we're going to invite you to turn in, the, in your scripture, scriptures to Mark. Uh, we're continuing on. We're in Mark chapter 14. 
We're going to be looking at verses 53 today through chapter 15, verse 15. And I'm going to break it into sections and read it in sections today. But just a couple of thoughts in, in, by way of introduction. Um, John Steinbeck, in his book written in the 50s, written 1957, The Short Reign of Pippin IV, writes a story about a, a man named Pippin Heristel, who um, was an astronomer by trade and was um, uh, um, moved into a, a role of the monarchy of France in the 50s. Uh, he had some distant relationship in the, in the novel, as it goes. It's a, uh, a fiction. He had uh, some distant relationship to the famous King Charlemagne. And the, the attempt, of course, was to, to put him in power as monarch and, and give the communists some reason to take down the monarchy. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, con, it's a, a complex story. But he would ride around, uh, in his, put on his civvies and ride around in, in Paris and and because and, uh, he missed so much the common life. But in that book, there's an interesting statement that's made. And the statement is a little bit of a twist on what we've heard before. The statement is this, power does not corrupt. Fear corrupts. Perhaps the fear of a loss of power. What we're going to see today, I think, is that played out before us. As we look at the trial that... The Sanhedrin and Pilate place upon Jesus. Hours before the greatest injustice the world has ever or will ever witness. Where power brokers were jockeying for ways to preserve their personal vision of a way of life. Or a way that they preferred, positions that they preferred. There was no shortage of collective human guilt. The power structures, the power struggles. Power does not corrupt, but the fear of preserving power absolutely corrupts. Of using truth as a commodity to preserve a personal ambition. One thing that history justifies, and that is certainly the collective guilt of humanity. We're all guilty of every form of human failure and wickedness. And Jesus Christ, of course, would die willingly, but not before humanity emptied to the dregs the cup of its own ambitions wickedly. Humanity will do just about anything to justify its own guilt. And the most efficient way to get rid of guilt, rid of moral guilt at least, is to get rid of God. And then you can make truth your servant. That was precisely what the religious leaders of the time and the governor, Pilate, was, or the, the government officials, Pilate, were, were about at that particular time. So, getting rid of God, Jesus was put on trial, allegedly for his claims to being a prophet, to being a king, to being a savior. As it turned out, it was really all just about getting rid of Jesus at any cost, and any excuse would do, and any evidence that could be fabricated to that end was acceptable. In the end, the, the, the trial really turned on humanity. Nothing, it seems, has changed all these years later. So this morning, I want to look in the text at three alarming attempts to cover guilt. And if you are presently attempting to cover up your guilt, repent. Repent now. As always, the events are recorded 
that are recorded are recorded to reveal Jesus. But as we always learn in these texts, in the process, they reveal us as well. Well, that's before we turn to the text, let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for your word to us. And the events that we're about to study this morning are, are certainly um, disquieting, certainly alarming, certainly disheartening. Hard to imagine, Lord, the wickedness of humanity, uh, the willingness to, to uh, use truth, manipulate it to one's ends, pervert it. Lord, we realize that we live in days that nothing much has changed. So we just pray this morning as we peer into the text, first of all, we know that you are going to reveal afresh to us a perspective on who Jesus is, but in the, in the process of that, we know that you're going to open up our hearts and dissect them and examine them and lay them out before us that we might also realize that the text reveals who we are as well. So Lord, forgive us for our guilt. Forgive us for the things that cause us to be guilty. Forgive us for our sin. And I pray, O oh God, today that we might have a new resolve as we work our way through this text, a new resolve to love our Savior with all of our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, O oh God. I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, before we dive into the text, I think it's important, I, I would like to just point out to you that, that in, in chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, there's a curious description of, uh, that's not handled in any of the other Gospels, and there's a reason for that, I think, that is, uh, is instructive and important, I think. It says there, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, this is not picked up in any of the other Gospels. And we're pretty certain, the interpreters are pretty certain that this is a description of, that Mark placed in his gospel of himself as a really young man, perhaps a, a, a young teenager. And, and, and the speculation is this, and I, I think there's good reason to believe it, is that, that the events in the upper room that had just preceded were events that took place in the home of Mark's parents, John Mark's parents. We find out later on in the book of Acts, Acts 12, verse 12, that, that the first church of Jerusalem met in John Mark's mother's house. The mother's name was Mary. It was there that the, the early disciples, the early church, the first church, uh, was praying to get Peter out of prison. And, and it was likely this very same upper room where Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. And, and Mark, as a young teenager, was probably... Uh, watching the events that were taking place. Uh, or maybe he woke up when, when things started to, to happen and he grabbed a bed sheet and wrapped it around his body and took off and ran to the Garden of, of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives, and was observing all the things that were taking place. And, and, and then he was seized and they, they ripped away the, the, the uh, actual bed clothing and he ran away naked. And now all of this, I think, is to say that, that guys, listen, um, most of this that I'm sharing with you is from, from Peter's recollection as the Holy Spirit led him, but I want you all to know that I was an eyewitness to these things. I was, a, I was part of the, the passion of this last week. I saw what happened. The, the upper room was, is my house, and, and, and the early church began in my house, and, and, and what I have to say is, 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 a, is an eyewitness account to you, and so... 
he shares with us the events that actually Peter was, was sharing with him, but, but he was very much a part of this. And so I looked up in the legal dictionary the purpose of a trial, and I, I found this description. The purpose of a trial is to secure, secure fair and impartial administration of justice between the parties to the action. Keep, keep that in mind as we work our way through the trial here, that a, the purpose of a trial is to secure fair and impartial administration of justice between the parties to the action. We're going to discover as we work our way through that nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing, all, all the events that took place that were supposed to take place legally were, were uh, abominations to, uh, to legitimate justice. So in, in chapter 14, verse 53, we begin there. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. And this, of course, is the Sanhedrin. We'll talk about that in a moment. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Note that. Looking for evidence, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their state statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow! The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need, to, any, more, why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Well, let's, let's pause here. This is the word of God to us this morning. I, I want to, as I said, look at three alarming attempts to cover up guilt. And the first is this, manufacturing a false narrative. Manufacturing a false narrative or a fake storyline. That's how disbelievers seek to justify their premeditated rejection. This really becomes the trial of the Sanhedrin. Although they allegedly are putting Jesus on trial, this is the trial of the Sanhedrin. They're looking for a ways to trump up charges against Jesus, but it says they could not find any evidence. There, many testified falsely, and their statements didn't agree. What we have here, folks, is a gathering of the Jewish religious elite, the the Sanhedrin is made up of 71 men. They would be made up of, comprised of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. There were 71 of them, as I say, and that was the, the, the group. These were supposed to be the wisest of the wise. These were supposed to be the, the, the most spiritual of the spiritual. These were supposed to be the choice religious leaders of Israel. These were supposed to be men who cared for the flock of God. These were supposed to be the, the ones who cared, the ones who, 
who had devoted their lives to a, to a way of life to bring knowledge of the greatness of God to people. That's who these were supposed to be. They were entrusted to handle justice in Israel. They were the supreme court of the Jewish people. And here they are, breaking all of the rules. Let me just give you a few of them. They were, they were, it was required of the Sanhedrin that they could not meet at night nor during a feast time. They were meeting at night. They hastily threw together a meeting. They were meeting at feast time. And they, they weren't all there. They were required to meet on the temple precincts. They didn't meet on the temple precincts. Details of the trial or evidence of the trial was to always match. Nothing matched in this, in this trial. Their decisions were required to have independent 100% agreement, starting from the youngest to the oldest. But they all had to be there, and they all weren't there, and they weren't all in agreement. There had to be a full day elapse between their sentencing and the carrying out of the sentence. That's not what happened. This was thrown together in the middle of the night, and the sentence was carried out the next morning. So you can see that none of their... their um, um, their model of justice, none of the elements of how the justice was supposed to be carried out took place at this particular event. The interrogation of Christ was not a sincere pursuit of information. It was a strategy to weaponize their own stubborn rejection. Eyes cannot see what they refuse to look at. Ears will not hear what they refuse to listen to. Those who are addicted to their own power don't want Jesus to be true. That's how this played out. The issue for the Sanhedrin was Jesus claims to be Messiah. And they would, have, they would not have it. There was no agenda to keep Jesus from being Messiah that was out of bounds. And so they even asked him, Questions in an illegitimate manner. Are you the Christ? Those are leading questions. That was an illegitimate way to question him. Are you the Christ? The son of the blessed one? Are you? And Jesus responds to them with this powerful statement. I am. And no doubt the religious leaders heard echoing in their head. The great statement of the great I am. And to his earlier teaching Jesus by the way, had attributed Psalm 110 verses 1 and following to himself when David was speaking of the Lord. He had already, just earlier in preaching in the temple uh, confines, had said to them that he was, he was the Lord who David was referring to. And now he, he reveals in, in, in pulling out all of the self-disclosure stops, he pulls out this statement and yes, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus here is interpreting the vision of Daniel, this powerful vision of end times, and accrediting it to himself. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in the chapter 7 of Daniel, Daniel is um, interpreting a dream 
that uh, was had. And with respect to the dream, there are the uh, four beasts, and then it talks about the horns and the little horn representing the Antichrist or representing the end of time. And uh, Jews knew of this eschatological teaching, and the high priest, the Sanhedrin, would certainly know uh, of what Jesus was referring to here. And in this vision, Daniel writes, in my vision at night I looked And there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Jesus in a stunning declaration of self-revelation states that he is the son of man described by Daniel's vision of the eschaton of the coming judgment on the world and here he is stating to them that he alone as the son of man is very God the one who is given all power and authority sitting on in the throne in the throne room standing beside the ancient of days um, so now we know, literally Jesus translates this Daniel 7 text for us. Now we know who this son of man is described in Daniel. Who does Jesus believe he is? You may refuse to believe, but there is no biblical ambiguity here. Jesus declares himself the son of God, the very one described in the scriptures of the text. And he is the one who will be the coming one, coming in the clouds of heaven. It's at this point that the uh, high priest tears his clothes in some sort of pious act of, 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 um, of outrage in, in, in imagining at this kangaroo court that, that Jesus is uh, declaring himself as very son of God. Now, what... Each of us need to recognize in this particular situation whereby he is under trial for being prophet. Because at the end of the text that they're mocking him, telling Jesus to prophesy is in this, this very kangaroo court is exonerating Jesus in terms of proof as prophet. He is already presented to his disciples and to those who were willing to listen in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, that he will be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders. That's precisely what's happening at this very moment. He will be, um, they will condemn him, and they are about to do that, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. The very things they claim Jesus can't do, the very uh, reason they're pl- putting him on trial, claiming he's not prophet, are in fact coming true in the very hearing of, of, of their uh, objections, Jesus' credentials and his qualifications uh, that are on trial at this present moment is absurd. And he turns the tide and turns the tables and actually puts the religious leaders on trial. It is simply impossible to cast shade on Jesus as prophet in the midst of the fulfillment of the very events he prophesied. Here and at the cross, he was taunted Yet that Calvary itself happened and that these events are happening validates Jesus' credentials as prophet. 
And as they taunt him at the very end, prophesy, and the guards took him and beat him. To what extent would you go to justify your premeditated rejection of Jesus Christ? To what extent are you presently going? If you're out there and you don't know Jesus and you have intentionally chosen not to know Jesus, you don't want Jesus to be true, I urge you and I caution you. Jesus is who he declares he is. The tragic reality is that um, there is no redemption available to hearts that premeditatedly prefer not to be rescued. I urge you to repent today. Do not continue to turn away from Jesus. Do not continue to deafen your ears and close your eyes to the very things that are obvious. Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, and he will come someday as God's judge over all the, over all the earth. Well, the story continues. While Peter was, verse 66, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. There are three alarming attempts to cover guilt. The first is to manufacture a false storyline, a false narrative. But the second has to do with things that we as believers tend to do, and that's keep busy and on the move. Believers attempt to avoid the consequences of their own guilt through busyness and denial. And here we see this played out for us in Peter's life, the crash and the trial of Peter in these verses. Now, you may have heard these statements before in a different way. Hey, you're, you're a Christian, aren't you? you? You don't believe that, do you? Or maybe you've stood in a classroom somewhere with a, a bunch of scientists standing around who are mocking Christians and there you stand quietly and, and you hear them say those weak-minded religious types and you keep quiet, you don't, for fear of saying anything. Or maybe some people point you out and say, you follow Jesus in the workplace, you follow Jesus, don't you? You're, you're one of those Jesus freaks, aren't you? We've heard these kind of statements before. The tragedy of Peter's life, of course, as he encountered the very same thing, is that Peter lost the battle against temptation before it had even begun. Jesus warns him against that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had invited, them all to, he had invited the, some of his disciples to come and pray with him. And you remember that he kept coming back and finding them asleep. And he said to Peter, Peter, the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't you realize that you're about to face an ordeal, about to face a trial? And here it is. 
right in Peter's face. That's how it usually goes down for us. We lose the battle to temptation long before it even begins. The sins of omission become sins of commission at blinding speed. Let's consider where Peter actually lost his battle with temptation. Peter, like most, was building some trouble into his life and he just kept running, just kept moving, just kept being busy as the night's events unfolded. But just a few, a few verses before, Peter had been so bold and so reckless to say, but Jesus had said, but after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. He, he utters this reckless overconfidence. And then he, he talks about, even if all the others fall away, scorning all the others, even if, if I have to die with you, Skipping his spiritual preparation, of course, not recognizing the weakness of undisciplined flesh. He had skipped prayer time with Jesus. And then he continues on and he follows Jesus and the, and, and the religious leaders into the, the courtyard of the high priest. Going into any enemy territory alone is a dangerous venture, especially when you're not in good spiritual robust shape. And then overestimating his own ability to act righteously. I will never disown you. Verse 31 of chapter 14, Peter says, I will never disown you. The unsettled stuff you know in our lives demands a reckoning someday. Peter's reckless overconfidence, his scorning of others, his skipping spiritual preparation, his going into enemy territory alone, his overestimating of his own abilities to act righteously, came back to roost that night. You can't be spiritually robust and skim the margins of life at the same time. When uh, an unavoidable crisis lands, and it will, and it usually comes at a surprisingly quick speed, your spiritual immune system rises or crashes depending on your preparation in advance. It's too late once the crisis arrives. The crisis first reveals and then the crisis rebuilds. But there's no time to upgrade spiritual uh, deficiencies when a crisis arrives. And so he, here, here's Peter at this kind of witness moment. When a witness moment is put right in your face, you were also with the Nazarene. You were also with Jesus. And there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide now. There's nowhere to escape. You're surrounded by the crisis. And you're placed out there on, on, for all to, dis, to see on display. And we see a progression of what Peter does here. First of all, he plays dumb in verse 68. I don't know or understand what you're even talking about. I, I, I don't know. What are you talking about, religious? What are you talking about, uh, scriptures and Jesus? What, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And then in verse 70, he, he moves to from, from plain dumb to denying. Uh, again, he denies. He, he denies himself. I'm, I'm not, uh, this fellow is one of them. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one of these guys that you're thinking I am. And then uh, finally in verse 71, he gets to full flower and full bloom and he curses himself and then he denies Christ. 
Now, what's the difference, of course, between betraying Christ and denying Christ? In Judah's case, uh, betraying Christ, he turned on Jesus, turned against him. But in the matter of denying, as opposed to betraying, Peter just simply turns from Christ. It's a bitter pill to swallow, but it's not the same as betraying. You know, you can keep running. Even if all fall away, Jesus, I won't. But Jesus knows. In fact, Jesus had said to Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, Peter. This is the same Peter who, when Jesus said to his disciples, you know, who do people say I am? And they, they made statements about, uh, well, people are saying you're this, or people are saying you're this person. And he turned to them and he said, but who do you say I am? And Peter was the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What happened? What happened to that bold Peter? What happened to that Peter who who knew who Jesus was? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living and almighty God. And here in this moment with a servant girl of the high priest, he folds up like a cheap tent. Who do you say I am, Peter? A girl confronting truth. What are you going to do, Peter? What are you going to say? What what kind of Jesus are you going to represent to her? Are you going to deny Jesus? This may be her opportunity to hear the good news, to hear the gospel. This may be your opportunity when someone says, hey, you're a freak, you're a Jesus freak. You're one of those weak-minded Christians it's your moment, it's it's your witness moment that has just showed up. Jesus just presented it to you. And and the answer, the question that's being asked is, who who do you say I am to these people? Peter, who did you represent me as? Someone not worth knowing? Someone of no value? Someone you'd rather turn away from? Someone you want to get distance from? Why would they want me? You don't even want me. And when the realization of all of this hit him, Peter wept. He broke down and he wept, as we do. So why would Peter be so adamant about sharing this incredible failure in his life with us? Why would Peter... Tell Mark, Mark, make sure you put this in the gospel. Make sure that everyone sees this. Make sure that everyone sees my failure. I'm convinced I know why. It's because Peter realized after the fact that Jesus had already prophesied of Peter's failure and loves Peter anyway. Jesus had already recorded to Peter The fact that he in his own heart and in his own mind, in the mind of the divine one, who sees all and knows all, and knows every sin that we have committed in the past, and knows every sin that is yet scheduled for us to commit. And yet he loves us anyway. Peter, before the crow, before the rooster crows two times, You are going to sin against me three times. And Peter, I love you anyway. What a gracious Savior this is.
Your failures, my failures, are already recorded on Christ's daily agenda, and he loves us anyway. The sins that you're going to commit Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday are already known by Christ. And believer, he loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. Big gospel takeaway. It's one thing to be forgiven of our past sins, but how gracious is this Savior? It's quite another to be forgiven of sins already scheduled to, to happen. Well, there's a final section here that I want to get to, a few moments that we have. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner from the people whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd... Pilate released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. There are three alarming attempts to cover guilt. One is manufacturing a false narrative. The other is keeping busy on, on the move. But the third is holding the truth in contempt. The powerful get good at covering their own guilt by manipulating truth. This is the trial of Pilate. You see, the charge of blasphemy that they had been using for them, among themselves was not going to hold up in a Roman court. So the issue had to become a political threat. And no one in this mob was above customizing the charges. Some form of threatening the power structure of Rome would have to do. And so uh, they claimed that he threatened to be some sort of self-stylized king. Uh, somehow in their teachings about paying taxes, etc., Digging into their handbag of tricks and lies, a bottomless bag of tricks and lies was not above them or not beneath them. And uh, of course, Pilate at this time as representative of Rome was uh, on a heightened uh, alarm uh, himself uh, because of the potential for an outbreak of rioting. And so he was ready for just about anything and any reason to uh, get rid of trouble. So here we have Pilate uh, accepting these charges. Which, by the way, ironically, was the very kind of Messiah they supposedly wanted until they didn't want him that way. These were days, by the way, when truth had become cheap, commodified, to be used, to be spun. Which meant God, who is the ultimate truth and reality, is also, however, 
meant to be spun and however anybody wanted to fabricate him. This whole last section is God on trial. The great I am is being put on trial. But you and I need to know that every man and every woman is on trial over one question. And that question comes up in this text, who is Jesus? Every person's eternal destiny hangs in the balance over that very question, on how that question is answered, or on how that question is avoided, or on how that question is deflected, or on how that question is delayed in a person's life. But that question must be answered. And so in this particular situation, if evidence and accusations can provide a legitimate excuse for eliminating Christ from being a factor in one's life, so much the better. Are you a king? Are you a threat to good government? Peaceful occupation? Are you a threat to the established religion? If you are, Jesus... For the good of the people, for the good of the masses, for the good of families, for the good of my family, for the good of my way of life, my preferred way of life, it's my duty to eliminate you. To make my conscience feel clean. And to make our consciences feel clean. We accuse him. We shame him. We find contradictions about him. We hold him in contempt to elevate somehow the rightness of our actions, our civic duty, our political correctness, the political correctness of our actions. And then we can say, well, of course, it's understandable, it's justifiable, it's in the best interest of society that we put Jesus aside, that we put him away. Who are you, Jesus? And Pilate asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered in in your New International Version, yes, it is as you say, and that's one possible way of rendering the text, but it's highly likely that Jesus said it more this way, you say so, or something like whatever you say. And it's likely because there's no way Jesus wanted to put his followers at political risk with Rome. And so he was not declaring himself to be king at this particular moment. Jesus was sheltering his followers from a hunt down. He knew that Pilate wasn't interested in truth. There was nothing that he could say that Pilate was interested in. When you're powerful enough to decide whether truth lives or dies, its value to you plummets. Truth meant nothing to to Pilate. So officially, Jesus went on trial for being a king. And in a hastily and quickly cobbled together prisoner exchange... Pilate offers to the crowd a a murderer, a scoundrel, a political dissident, a social misfit by the name of Barabbas, this prisoner exchange. The whole of Calvary's message now is pictured in this incredible moment where you have the innocent Jesus and a guilty Barabbas. You have a peaceful prophet and savior and king and you have an insurrectionist and murderer and and one who will lead the people of Israel into ruination with Rome in year year, matter of years to come you have the innocent and the guilty you have the innocent who will pay so that the guilty goes free in this moment the essence of Calvary is played out for us in this picture of the wicked 
guilty Barabbas being set free on the basis of the payment of the innocent Jesus, Messiah, Savior, Son of God. There it is, folks. The gospel played out for us. The last value, by the way, standing that separates a society from optimism or total cynicism is its value of truth. And it says in the text here that Pilate handed Jesus over, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed, him to the, handed Jesus to him. Pilate displays for all the world to see the abject poverty of first century Rome when he holds truth in contempt and he knowingly sentences an innocent man to die even though the sentence was unlawful and was to satisfy the desires of people he himself hated. You see, the sentence itself was unlawful. A Roman citizen could be beheaded as a capital punishment. The Jews, for the Jews, capital punishment was stoning. But it was only foreigners and slaves that could be sentenced to crucifixion. Foreigners and slaves. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own did not recognize him. But rather they turned him over. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, the Old Testament, which would be echoing in the ears of all who would witness the crucifixion, it states there that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Beloved, once truth goes, there is nothing but absurdity and chaos. And at the end of this section, the absurd statement is made that Pilate hands Jesus over to be flogged. Why? What had he done? And then handed him over to be crucified. Let me wrap this up this morning with a couple of questions. Are you trying to bury your guilt by burying your head? Hiding from truth doesn't mean it goes away. Are you failing to benefit from the immensity of Jesus' grace? Are you keep, do you keep running from your guilt, trying to be busy and hope that it won't find its way to the top of your conscience? Jesus already knows. Jesus already knows and has gone there before you to forgive you. Turn to his grace. Are you willing to let the truth lead you to Jesus? I mean sincerely. If you are someone out there this morning listening and you have been avoiding Christ, you've been avoiding the reality of Christ, but, but you can't deny that he is who he says he is. Are you willing to chase down the truth to where it leads you? Because truth always leads to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What do we take away, beloved, from this? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the coming judge over all the world. Jesus is the gracious, omniscient God who forgives us, even of our sins, that he knows we are yet to commit. And Jesus is the King 
and eternal Lord. And as such, the truth is held by him, preserved forever. Won't you turn to him? Who do you say I am, Jesus says. I hope today and I hope during this difficult time, you will let everyone know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who cares for us, the one who loves us, the one who provides for us, the one who forgives us, the one who saves us from our sins. Oh, won't you turn to him today? Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we, we enter into this story and realize what our Savior went through for us, he was beaten and the false charges were brought against him. He was denied by his closest friends, those he loved the most. He was betrayed by one who walked with him. He was turned over to the authorities of the government who trumped up charges against him and had him flogged, O oh God, horribly, horribly beaten and then sentenced to be crucified. And yet, Lord, the innocent did this for the guilty, that the guilty might go free. Oh God, we are Barabbas. We're the ones who get to go free. And Jesus is the innocent one who died on our behalf. Lord, thank you today. We praise you. We love you. We thank you that you encourage us with your word. And we know, Father, that we can take refuge in you because you have demonstrated the ultimate love for us in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen.